good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We're in the second week of Advent today. And as we talked about last week, the word Advent simply means this. It, it means the coming. It means the arrival. The Advent season is traditionally the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And just like the Israelites that we've been seeing in the book of Exodus, we too are a people who are prone to forget. Even though God has done the greatest thing in the world in sending his son to us. Right? We are a people who are prone to forget, even during this Christmas season and time where we're supposed to be mindful of that. We are people who are so prone to forget who Jesus is, all the, thing, all the things that he has done for us, all the things that he is doing for you and I right now. But Advent is a season that we as God's people especially set aside and say, not these four weeks. We're not going to forget these four weeks. We're going to remember. Advent is a season where we especially think upon the coming of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus. It's a season where we especially celebrate the coming of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus. And what is that? That's Christmas. But we don't stop there. It's a season where we especially long for the second coming of Jesus, his, his return to us. It's a season where we especially think upon, celebrate, and long for the coming of Jesus. The coming of Jesus is at our focal point during the season of Advent. John chapter one, verse 14, the apostle John describes the coming of Jesus like this. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, the Word became flesh. Who's the Word? That's Jesus. He says, the Word became flesh and he dwelt among us, John tells us. And that word dwelt is the same word as the word tabernacle in the Greek Septuagint. And so John is literally telling us this. He's saying the word became flesh. Jesus came and was born among us. And the word tabernacled among us. That's what he's literally saying. He's drawing a tie and a parallel between Jesus and the Old Testament tabernacle. And so that's why during this Advent season, we're looking at the tabernacle as described in the book of Exodus. If you were here last week, you might have been confused. Why are we looking at the tabernacle, an Old Testament tabernacle, to think about Jesus? Well, because there's nothing quite like the tabernacle to point us to the person of Jesus, all the things that he accomplished and why we needed him so desperately. And so like Matt did for us last week so wonderfully, we want to do a couple of things. Number one, I want to give you a quick overview of the tabernacle, especially for those of you who weren't here last week. And number two, whereas Matt focused on the golden lampstand, I want us to focus on another element of the tabernacle, another furnishing of the tabernacle called the altar of incense. And so the tabernacle, what's it all about? What's the tabernacle all about? Yes, it's a place of worship that God provided. From the moment that God saved and rescued the Israelites out of their slavery and bondage in Egypt, he was leading them to a promised land, right? But on their journey, the tabernacle is the place that God provided as the place of worship. 
And the question is, why does God spend 15 chapters giving such specific instructions on how to build everything and where to position everything? The book of Exodus is a book made up of 40 chapters. 15 of them, God spends giving instructions on the tabernacle. Why? What's he doing? What's he showing us? He's showing us something. What's he showing us? Matt described it last week as the reversal of Eden. He said a reversal of Eden is being described. In the Garden of Eden, what we have is God creating everything, right? The sun, moon, and stars, the giraffe, elephant, and tigers, the mountains, the rivers, the trees, and every good fruit to eat, and him looking at man his last creation, his most prized creation, the only creation he created in his own image and saying to man, here it is. Here's everything that I've created. I've created for you, for you to have, for you to enjoy, for you to take care of. And if your parents in the room, you know what's happening here. You know what this is like. You know, Angela and I, my wife and I, nine years ago, we experienced one of the greatest moments of our lives when our son Malachi was born and we were made parents for the very first time. It was a wonderfully frightening experience and, and it still is. But from the very moment that we found out we were pregnant, right? Um, what do you do as parents? You, from the very moment you find out you're pregnant, you start getting ready, okay? So we, we, we painted his room, we got him a crib, um, we, we got him thousands of onesies, you know? Onesies are the most comfortable clothes on earth that adults can't wear. If you wear it, you got issues, don't do it. But they are comfortable. They look so comfortable. Um, we got things like bumbo chairs and baby um, um, Bjorns and aspirators. You know, if you're in the room going, what is that exactly? That's how I felt, but we needed it, you know? Without bumbo chairs, you set your baby down, they bloop, you know, they flop over. So bumbo chairs, they, they squeeze their tight, chubby thighs and they just keep them in place. They don't go nowhere, you just sit right here. That's what you do. That's why you need them. You need all these things. And so we, we were ready for him. And then when he was finally born and they put him in my arms for the first time, I held him, I looked at him, and the only words that I could think of to express my feelings for him were these words. I said, Malachi, everything that I have is yours. Everything that I have is yours. And that's what God was doing in the garden. He readied the skies. He hung up lights. He hung up the stars. He filled the land with animals to run around, right? He planted trees and flowers, and, and he sang everything that I've created is for you, for you to have, for you to enjoy. He didn't need those things. Why did he create all those things? And why did he create all those things before he created man? He was preparing everything for man. And he said, everything I have is yours. And when the Bible says he walked with man in the cool of the day, right, what's he doing? He's saying, I am yours. That's what he's saying. Not just my stuff, but I am yours. The fullness of who I am, the fullness of my presence, everything that I've created and all that I am is for you, right? Everything I am is for you. And then what does he do? He gives man one prohibition. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One prohibition. So in the Garden of Eden, what we essentially have is this. On the one hand, God is saying, here's everything that I've created, every approved blessing from me. It's for you, for you to have, for you to enjoy. And not only that, me, all of me. 
And on the, un on the other hand, one prohibition. Just one. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does man choose? What does man choose? We chose the one prohibition. We chose the one prohibition. That's why we were cut off. That's why we were cast out from God's presence. But the question is, is that it? Was that our one chance at paradise, one chance at being in the, in the presence of God? Did we have our one chance and did we blow it forever? Or is there a way back? Is there a way back into the Garden of Eden? Is there a way back into God's presence? And through the Old Testament tabernacle and through Jesus ultimately who tabernacled among us, God is shouting, yes, there is a way back. There is a way back. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia. What is our lifelong nostalgia? Our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off. To be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. What C.S. Lewis is saying is that here is our real situation. I don't know what your view of reality is, but this is reality. This is our real situation. Our real situation is that we've been cut off. It's not just the feeling people have. We truly have been cut off. It's not just neurotic fancy, he says. It's a reality. But there is a way back, he says. There is a way back into God's presence, but we can't get there by our merits. He says it's beyond our merits. We can't work or earn ourselves back up to him. He has to come down to us. It's beyond our merit. The only way back, he says, is if we're summoned back, is if we're invited back. And the only way we can be invited back is if God proves himself to be glorious. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. Let's read in the last chapter of Exodus when Moses follows all of God's 15 chapters worth of instructions, finally erects the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 40, verse 33. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court so Moses finished the work. He did all that God commanded. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There it is, God being glorious. The whole reason why the tabernacle was set up was so that the glory of the Lord would fill it so that God could dwell with man once again. And let's look at what John said about Jesus again. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There it is again. When Jesus came and he tabernacled among us, we beheld his glory. We're being summoned back in to see and behold God's glory, his glory presence. And that word glory, we talked about it before, it means weight. It means the 
full weight of who God is. What the Bible is showing us is that the only hope that we have in entering back into God's presence, the only hope that we have in being saved is if God displays the fullness of who he is. In other words, God is so fully just and righteous. He is so fully just and righteous, he had to cut us off. He is filled to the brim with justice and righteousness, and so he had to demand payment for sin. He couldn't just let it go. He couldn't just slide it under the rug and say, oh, well, that's okay. But remember that word glory, the fullness of who he is. Our God isn't just the God of justice and righteousness. He's also the God of mercy and grace. He's filled to the brim with mercy and grace. And so even though in the fullness of his righteousness and justice, he demanded the payment for sin, in the fullness of his grace and mercy, he himself provided that payment in his son. That's our God being glorious. That's our God putting his glory on display for all to see. That glory of God is what the tabernacle of the Old Testament and ultimately Jesus who tabernacled among us is putting on display for all to see. We wish that we had a God who would just sweep our sins under the rug, but he wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be righteous, right? We wish we had a God who would just love and forgive us, right? But in reality, we have a God who at great cost to himself was willing to love and forgive and offer grace. This is the glory of God we see in the tabernacle. And think about this for a moment. The tabernacle, as intricate as it was in its design, right, and the way that it was laid out, at the end of the day, it was just a tent. It was a tent in the wilderness. It was a tent in the desert. And I don't know about you, but I don't like tents. I like my house, I like sleeping in my bed. You know, sometimes I like the idea of tents. I like the idea of being in the woods and camping, sleeping in a tent. But the few times that I slept in a tent, I hated it. I don't like tents. But this is the glory of God we see in the tabernacle. Isaiah 66 tells us that heaven is God's throne. Heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool, it says. But in the tabernacle, we have a God who is willing to live and dwell in a tent in the wilderness, in the desert, just so he could be with you, just so he could dwell in the midst of his people. In the tabernacle, what is it all about? God in his glory saying, I want you back, and I'm going to make a way. Right? We have been cut off. Look at what we did. Look at what we chose. But there is a way back, and he's showing us I want you back, and I'm going to make a way. That's what the tabernacle is all about. Now, for the rest of our time together, I want to look at one element, one furnishing of the tabernacle. That is the altar of incense, okay? Um, it's, it, we're going to have a Bible study. You know, I know it's kind of darkish in here, Christmas lights, and it's, it's warm and cozy, and so hopefully do not fall asleep. We're going to have a Bible study. I want us to observe three things about the altar of incense. Number one, the position of the altar, the position of the altar, where it's placed, the purpose of the altar, what is it for, and the power of the altar, the position, the purpose, and the power. Worked real hard to make it all three piece for you. 
So first, let's look at the place of the altar. Where is it positioned in the altar, uh, in the tabernacle? Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. And you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And so if you kind of have a mental picture of the Ark of the Covenant in your mind, it's basically kind of a smaller version of that. And verse 6 says, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. So what we see here first is that the altar of incense was positioned right in front of the veil. That famous veil, Jesus said it is finished and it was torn, right? That the altar of incense was positioned right in front of that the veil, just on the other side was the Holy of Holies, okay, which represented the very presence of God. And what we're seeing here is this. What we're seeing is that if we're going to see and experience the fullness of God's presence, we can't bypass the altar of incense. That's what we're seeing. We can't bypass it. Let's look at the layout of the tabernacle. Okay, so here's the tabernacle. It's the whole thing. And the very outside is called the outer court. And so as you would approach and enter into God's presence, the first thing you would encounter is what's called the brazen altar. And so this is showing us that brazen altar was a place where sacrifices were made. And so this is showing us that if you're going to enter God's presence at all, if you're going to enter at all, our sins has to be dealt with. That's the number one thing. Our sins has to be dealt with. The the Bible says the wages of our sin is death. Something has to die. Either we have to die or something else has to die in our place. The brazen altar is showing us ultimately our need for a substitute. It's ultimately showing us the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. It's showing us that the most basic and fundamental level, apart from the death of Jesus, we can't get in. He's our our perfect substitute. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. And then as you get closer in, if you want to get closer in, the next thing you'll encounter is the labor. The labor is the place where the priest washed so that they can be clean. The labor ultimately is representing our need to be cleansed and washed. Our need to be baptized into the death of Jesus, the Bible tells us, so that we might also rise with him. As the Bible says, it is no, I have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Okay, and then if you're going to approach even closer into the very presence of God, you enter what's called the holy place. You're exiting the outer courts and you're entering into what's called the holy place. And from the very moment you enter in, to your left is the golden lampstand. And that's what we talked about last week. And the golden lampstand is representing our need for light in the midst of darkness. Our need for the light of the gospel. This is what God's been putting on display from the very beginning of creation, right? There was nothing. There was nothing but darkness. And God said, let there be light. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Bible tells us that just as he commanded the light to shine out of darkness, he commands the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Christ to shine in our dark hearts. It's a description of how you came to believe. It's a description of how you were saved. One moment you didn't believe, but the very next moment you did believe. How did you come to believe? God said, let there be light in your heart. Jesus is the light of the world who points us to the Father and shows us who the Father is. That's the light. And then to the right, in the, in the a holy place, there is the table of showbread. And on the table of showbread, the, what it represents is our need for God to continually provide for us, his daily provision, but not just physical bread. Right? Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's showing us our daily need for God's word, to be fed by it, to be equipped by it. Ultimately, Jesus, the word of God, who became flesh. And of course, all of these are critical and it's needed. But what all this layout, what it's showing us is if you want to even get closer, If you want to begin to approach the Holy of Holies, what you have to deal with is the altar of incense. You have to get there through the altar of incense. You can't bypass it. Without the altar of incense, there is no Holy of Holies. There is no experiencing of the full glory presence of God. But the next logical question is, so what is it? What's the purpose of the altar of incense? If the position of the altar, altar of incense is showing us that we can't get there into the Holy of Holies without it, then what is it? What does it symbolize? David says in Psalm 141, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And in Revelation chapter eight, It says, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints of the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of of the angel. And so without going into details of what's happening in the book of Revelation, at the very least what we're seeing is this, that there is a golden altar of incense in heaven. There's also a golden altar of incense in heaven. You know, when Moses was taken up to the mountain of God and God was giving instructions concerning the tabernacle, he said to go and build the tabernacle according to the pattern of the tabernacle that I showed you, right? What this is showing us is that this earthly Old Testament tabernacle is a earthly representation of a spiritual reality that exists. And what Psalm 141 and Revelation 8 is showing us is that the smoke of the incense represents what? The prayers of God's people. It represents our prayers. And so when we put all of this together, what conclusion are we coming to? In a very real way, when Jesus said, it is finished, and the veil tore from top to bottom, we are given access to the full glory presence of God. But the only way we can take hold of that access, actually experience the fullness of what Jesus accomplished for us, 
It's through prayer. It's through prayer. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I feel this way. You know, I think to myself, I thought the veil was torn, right? That's the great gospel message that is presented all the time. The the veil was torn. Jesus said it is finished, and the veil tore from top to bottom, and we get to enter now into the full glory presence of God. If you're in Christ, that's what Jesus did for you. If you're here, you're not a believer, this is one of the greatest promises of God in the work of the cross that we have full access into God's presence in knowing who he is and experiencing him. But at many times, you know, there's large chunks, there's seasons in my life where I don't feel close to him. I feel like he's far away, you know? And I wonder why. I thought the veil was torn, God. I thought I could enter all the way in, God. I thought there was no longer barriers, God, keeping me from you. So why do I feel distant? And then I realized that I can't remember the last time where I just went into the closet and met with my God in prayer. I can't remember the last time I prayed. In other words, the veil is torn. You do have full access, but maybe you're feeling far off because you're not praying. Jesus accomplished it for you. You have full access. You can draw near to the throne of God's grace with confidence, the Bible says. You can have access to it, but maybe you still feel far off because you're not praying. And others of you are saying, but I do pray, but I still feel far off. I don't think he hears me. I want us to see another thing about the altar of incense, Exodus 30, verse seven. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning, When he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. It says here that God commanded incense to be burned on the altar continually. Every morning, every twilight, keep it burning, he's saying. A regular incense offering before the Lord. And so what's God saying? He's saying to us, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. You know, God's command to us, pray without ceasing. For a long time, it's just felt burdensome, you know? It just seemed like something I could never really obey. God, I pray sometimes, what do you mean I have to pray without ceasing? Why would you lay such a burdensome command upon me? It sounded burdensome, but when God commands, keep the incense burning, pray without ceasing, what does prayer represent? So what is he saying to us? He's saying to us, there's not a single moment in the day when I don't want to meet with you. That's what he's saying. Everything that Jesus did on the cross was so that we might have access into his full presence. We have that access through prayer. And so when he commands pray without ceasing, he's telling us in a very real way, there's not a single moment in the day when I don't want to meet with you. There's not a single moment in the day when I don't want to give you the fullness of who I am. What if he were to say to us, just pray sometimes? Don't pray all the time, please. What if he were to say that? He's communicating something about his heart when he says pray without ceasing. Through prayer, God is offering us all of him all the time. Through prayer, God is offering us all of him all the time. And this is what the Bible teaches us, to persist in our prayers, to keep praying. In 1 Kings chapter 18, we have the story of Elijah the prophet 
who prayed that it would rain. Okay, he prayed that it would rain, and then he sent his servant, hey, go look over the sea, is it raining? His servant goes and looks, and he says, nope, I don't see anything, clear skies. And so Elijah goes back to praying a second time, and he prays, and, and then he asks his servant, will you go look again? Servant goes and looks and says, nope, still nothing. Elijah prays a third time, sends his servant a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time, a seventh time. Elijah the prophet servant finally goes and looks and and he says well there's kind of a little gathering of a cloud and the bible tells us that in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was great rain elijah had to pray seven times before even a small cloud gathered in the sky do you see elijah was praying that it would rain and it did rain and what is that showing us elijah was praying god's will right And even though Elijah was praying God's will, he had to pray seven times before it rained. And so, maybe you're praying, you're asking God for something, right? You're really asking God for something. And maybe you're even praying his will. You prayed once. Maybe you've prayed even two or three times, but have you prayed seven times? Have you persisted? in your prayers. And some of you are saying, you know, I don't know if I have the heart to persist like that. I don't know if I have the heart to really go all in with God like that, to say, I'm gonna ask you, God, over and over and over again. I'm gonna trust you, God. Here's all of me. I'm begging you, God, right? I don't know if I have the heart to persist like that. Why? Because you're saying to yourself, what if he says no, right? What if I trust him in that way? What if I ask him in that way and he still says no? Well, look at the prayers of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If anyone could have just prayed once and it be done, right? If anybody could have just asked once and God does it for him, it was Jesus. If anyone could have just prayed once and just trusted God for whatever the answer he had in mind, it was Jesus. But he persisted in his prayers, didn't he? He kept asking, didn't he? And guess what? God said no. God said no to his prayers. Jesus prayed, Father, is there any other way? Can this cup pass from me? Do I have to go to the cross? Right? And God said no to Jesus. But through that no, he accomplished the greatest thing in human history. Our salvation. And so think about this. If Jesus would have just prayed once, it would have simply been, Father, will you take this cup from me? That's what it would have been. But Jesus persisted in his prayers and his heart began to change and his his prayers transitioned into what? What was he asking the third time? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Do you see the freedom of persistent prayers? Either you keep asking, you keep asking, you keep asking, and God answers your prayers and does what you're asking him for, or as you persist in your prayers, he starts changing your heart. He starts opening your eyes to see as he sees and desire what he desires so that ultimately your prayer is, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He might say no to you. I don't know what you're asking him for, but he might say no to you. But when he says no to you, 
It's always for the purpose of accomplishing something greater than you could ever imagine. It's always for the purpose of accomplishing something greater than if he were to have said yes. If Jesus prayed, Father, will you take this cup from me? Is there any other way? Will you take this cup from me? What if the Father answered yes? What if God said yes to that prayer? Where would we be? I'm so glad for Jesus' persistent prayers. That is the freedom of persistent prayers. And the last thing I want us to see is the power of the altar. In other words, what makes our prayers work? What makes our prayers effective? There's one last thing that God commanded concerning the altar of incense. Verse 10. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. He commanded that once a year, the blood of the sin offering, the blood of the atonement, be put on the horns of the altar of incense. What this is showing us is that ultimately, what makes our prayers powerful and effective is not because of the quality of our prayers in and of themselves. Not because of the faithfulness in how ceaselessly we pray. You know, sometimes you pray and pray and pray and God does something and we think to ourselves, well, you know it's because I kept praying. You know, it's because I was faithful, right? And it's not because of how obedient we've been. Sometimes we think to ourselves, God, I really want this and I'll really obey. If I really obey, then I'll pray and he'll give it to me, right? Or that's what keeps us from praying. Man, why would God answer that prayer if I'm just not living in obedience, if I've just been rebelling against him? It's not because of that, not because we're using fancy words and prayers and sounding so articulate and elaborate in our prayers. Sometimes we listen to somebody that prays and we think to ourselves, man, that's how you pray. That's... That's the prayers that God listens to, not my bumbling prayers, right? But it's none of that. What this is showing us is that ultimately our prayers are powerful and effective, that ultimately we're able to know and experience the full glory presence of God through our prayers because of the blood of Jesus. That's what this is showing us. Not because our prayers are powerful and effective, but because the blood of Jesus is powerful and effective. Not because of the quality of our prayers, but because of the quality of the name in which we pray. That's why the Bible calls us to pray in the name of Jesus. That's why Jesus said in John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He will do what? Either he will give you what you're asking for, or he will accomplish something greater than you imagine by changing your heart to desire what he desires and see as he sees, so that he can mold you into the likeness of what his name actually represents. You know, imagine the priest in the Old Testament lighting that, incense, right? And as he lights the incense, just on the other side of the veil is the Holy of Holies. He lights the the incense, and here's the veil, and here's the Holy of Holies, but he can't go in. He lights the incense, but he himself cannot go in. But what makes it in? But what makes it in? The smoke of the incense makes it in. Do you see this? 
in a very real way, even though Jesus said it is finished and the veil has been torn in two, even though in a very real way we can draw near to the throne of God's grace and confidence, right? I don't know about you, but I'm still here. You're still sitting here. Where's God? He's in his throne room in the heavenlies. We can't get there yet. Right? One day we'll be in there. Jesus has worked and he's accomplished. He's, he's gone through the cross so that in order to guarantee that one day we will be in his throne room, but not yet. We can't get there yet. But what makes it in? We can't get there yet. But what makes it in? Smoke of the incense. Our prayers make it in. And so what all of this is showing us is that the reason why our prayers have power, even though we ourselves physically cannot go into God's throne room yet, is that even though we can't make it in yet, our prayers make it in. The smoke of God's, smoke of the incense makes it into the Holy of Holies. That's what we saw in Revelation chapter 8, right? Let's, let's read it again. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Church, not one prayer ever prayed in the name of Jesus, has ever been wasted. It makes it all the way into the throne room. It makes it all the way into the throne room. Every prayer that you've ever prayed in the name of Jesus has made it into the throne room in the heavenliness and it's rising up like incense and it's a smell, a pleasing aroma to God. Hebrews chapter seven tells us that Jesus, our perfect high priest, where is he right now? Says he's at the right hand of the Father, and says that he ever lives to intercede for us, that he ever lives to pray for you. And what this is saying is that your prayers don't end when you say amen. When you say amen, your prayers don't end. When you pray in the name of Jesus, you're saying, God, this is as far as I can go. You're saying, Jesus, this is as far as I can go. I'm still here on earth, and you, my God, my Father, is in heaven. But I'm praying to you in the name of Jesus, because even though this is as far as I can go, I know you can take my prayers all the way in. Because I know right now you're sitting at his right hand, and you ever live to plead for me. You're saying, I'm praying to you in Jesus' name, because I'm handing my prayers to you, Jesus. This is as far as I can go, but will you take my prayers all the way? Church, I don't know what you last prayed. Maybe it was this morning. Maybe it was a month ago, or maybe it's been years. But whatever you last prayed in the name of Jesus, it made it all the way in. It made it all the way into God's throne room. Not one prayer ever prayed in the name of Jesus has ever been wasted. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for you. He's praying for you right now. That's what the Bible says. Think about that for a moment. Right now, he's praying for you. He's praying for me. I wonder what he's praying for us. If I could imagine, I wonder what he's praying for us right now 
is that he's praying to the Father that we would get this. Saying, Father, will you help them get this? I went to the cross. The veil has been torn in two. They have full access to the fullness of who you are. You will meet them in prayer. Father, will you help them get this? And he prays for us as we pray. He prays for us when we're praying. You know, sometimes when we pray, it feels like the most lonely place on earth. Right? When we're finally driven to the place of prayer, sometimes it's because we got nothing else. Right? We go to prayer, it feels like the most lonely place ever, that we're all alone. We don't know if these prayers are even going anywhere. But what this is showing us is that you never pray alone. You never pray alone. When you're praying, Jesus is praying with you. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prays and he, go, he comes back and he finds his disciples sleeping and he says, Peter, you could not watch with me for one hour, right? We never have to make that indictment on Jesus. Jesus, I was praying and you did not watch with me. Every time you pray, he's praying with you. He's praying for you. And when you say amen and you think your prayers have just ended, right? That's when Jesus really just starts getting started. He takes your prayers all the way into the throne room and he pleads for you. He pleads for you. Father, they are praying your will. Will you do it? Or Father, they do not yet see as we see. Help them to see. Help them to desire what we desire. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why we through him utter our amens to God for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our true tabernacle. We thank you that in him we see that there is a way back and you are moving heaven and earth to be with your people once again so that you might dwell with your people once again. We thank you for the work of Jesus in being that perfect substitute. We thank you for the baptismal waters where we can die with Christ and be raised to live in the newness of life. We thank you for that light of the gospel, the light of the world who shows us who you are, that we are not left in the dark about who you are. And we thank you for your word, daily provision of your word. We thank you that your word constantly points us to who you are and your purposes. And most of all, in this time right now, God, we thank you that we're able to pray to you. We thank you that we're able to pray to you and we don't ever have to wonder if our prayers are invited or not because you'd say to us, pray without ceasing that our prayers are welcome to you at any time, in any place. Father, we thank you that our prayers have power and they're effectual and they have merit, not because it sounds so pretty, not because we live obedient lives, Lord, but because of Jesus who ceaselessly prays for us. Father, I know it's your will for us to be a praying people. I know it's your will for your church to be a praying church. I know it's your will for the Austin Stone to be a praying Austin Stone, Lord. So, Father, I ask you, 
And Father, we're going to keep asking you to accomplish that work. Make us into a praying people. Make us into a praying church so that finally our families might change, so that finally our schools and workplaces might change, so that finally the city might change, so that finally the gospel may go forward to the very ends of the earth. Father, one day we want to be there in your throne room. And as we watch the smoke of incense rise before you, be able to say, I did my best to fill that. I did my best to fill that golden censer. Thank you for your son. We are here now. This is as far as we can go. But we pray to you in the name of Jesus, asking you to take it all the way in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.